from Washington, D.C. and around the world. This is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. Congress has just two days to come up with a plan to avoid a government shutdown on Friday. The Senate failed yesterday to advance a bill that would have funded federal agencies until early December. The continuing resolution passed the House earlier this month, but Republicans rejected the measure because it also suspended the nation's borrowing limit until December 2022. They want Democrats to use a reconciliation to raise the debt ceiling without help from Republicans. If Congress doesn't act, the government would shut down on October 1st and likely default on its debts two to three weeks later. The Department of Veterans Affairs says it will offer COVID-19 Pfizer booster shots to veterans and employees who received vaccine doses six months ago or longer. It will prioritize individuals who are 65 and older, residents in long-term care, and those between ages 50 and 64 who have an underlying medical condition. If the VA has additional supplies, the department said it'll offer booster shots to all veterans and their families. VA will contact eligible veterans who receive their care from the department about the booster shots. Others who don't have medical records with the VA should contact the department for more information. The U.S. Census Bureau this summer began for the first time asking Americans about their sexual orientation and gender identity. In its household pulse survey, the Bureau found that during the pandemic, LGBTQ Americans were more likely than other Americans to have lost employment and not have enough to eat. They were also at higher risk of eviction or foreclosure and more likely to have a harder time paying for basic household expenses. The survey was taken between July 21 and September 13. The results are preliminary. A lot has been said about why the Taliban were able to retake power in such a short time in Afghanistan. My guest says that one reason was that the U.S. troops lacked cultural understanding of the Afghan people. Bakhtash Ahadi was a combat interpreter for American and Afghan special forces for three years. Bakhtash, welcome to the program. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me. You say that the majority of Afghans see the Taliban as the lesser of two evils. How can that possibly be when the U.S. put so much money into building Afghanistan? The answer is really simple. The United States didn't take the time and effort to essentially understand the people that they wanted to serve, meaning that there was a difference of values and a difference of understanding where people are coming from. Um, so if you can't meet, pe meet people where they are, Mimi, then how is it that you're able to serve them? Well, so give me some examples then of uh, what you call cultural illiteracy that you saw there. Absolutely. So uh, let me show you one of the biggest stories that I think uh, made a lot of headway when it happened, but it, it's, it's important to remind people now what that story was. In 2011, there was a Quran burning at Bagram Air Base. And uh, as the story goes, U.S. military soldiers essentially um, picked up these books within Bagram Air Base, brought them to the burn pit, and uh, burned them as though they were regular books. And what's interesting about the military bases all across Afghanistan is that Afghans would be working in them um, to provide their services. And so one of the uh, one of the um, people who was working at Bagram Air Base, an Afghan, saw that these books were being burned, and he brought them and showed the other his other colleagues. And all these Afghans who were Muslim um, realized that these books were actually the Holy Quran. And so this word kind of spread across the country and protests actually happened all across the country. And it got so bad such that President Karzai at the time 
uh, was threatening was threatening to kick out U.S. and NATO forces because we were disrespecting the culture. At least that's how it was perceived. And so this is a monumental example of how the United States didn't understand the things that they were dealing with, how important religion was in the context of Afghanistan, and how Afghanistan's history shows that the, the Afghans defeated the godless Soviets because they perceived them to be taking over their own country because of religious uh, ideology. And so this is just one example of how the United States was unprepared, ill-prepared to understand uh, what they were dealing with as a matter of these books and that in the aftermath um, that ensued afterwards as well. So are, are American troops given cultural training in, in addition to the obvious military training that they would go through? Some are, some are, but a lot of them weren't. So if you remember in 2009 when President Obama announced the surge, uh, there was something like 250,000 military soldiers there at the height of the of the U.S. surge in Afghanistan. It was impossible to train all of them. It just wasn't a priority. Um, on top of that, the majority of the people that served in Afghanistan stayed within the military confines, meaning stayed inside the wire. So think about this. Uh, the majority of people in Afghanistan there to serve the Afghan people never actually met Afghans outside the wire. But Bakhtash, really it wasn't safe to that. go outside the, the green zone. I mean, what were they supposed well, to do? They could have gotten kidnapped. They could have gotten killed. Well, that was the argument. But in the context of those who served there at the time, maybe you'll understand that those that you asked from 2010 to about 2015, it was actually quite safe to roam around Afghanistan. In addition to that, how is that we're supposed to win the hearts and minds of a people if we're not interacting with these people? So there's a mismatch of strategy. There's a mismatch of how we're going about or how we went about um, engaging, interacting and serving those that we want to essentially uh, be of service to. So then had American troops been more culturally sensitive, would that have made a difference in the outcome? Hmm. That's an interesting question. I'm not sure, but I know that it's one of the reasons why the United States wasn't able to be successful in Afghanistan. I mean, at the end of the day, what we're doing is uh, the message that I essentially want people to kind of take away is that we need to be radically curious about the other. We need to be radically curious about the people in which we're serving. Because if we're not doing that, if we're not engaging people from a place of uh, wanting to understand where they're coming from, especially if people that have been now through 40 years of war, we have to understand what the, the, war, the psychology of war is like, what happens to people, how their notions of time change, how they're still in a scarcity mentality, how they're thinking for the day versus us in the context of the West. We are living in a world of abundance, so we're always thinking aspirationally about what we could be and how, how we can kind of get there. And so just as a matter of philosophy of time um, and those sorts of values, we're not, we're not meeting people where they are. And more importantly, Mimi, is we're not actually um, understanding that they're actually starting from a different place. Right. So, so, so Bakhtash, simple things I, I, like I want to ask you this, which is what do you recommend to the Pentagon to do differently as far as training, as far as what what the troops are um, prepared for when they go into who knows, they might have to go to Afghanistan again or other countries? Right. Right. And my my prediction is that the United States will be back in Afghanistan because of how the country's laid out, the, uh, the geography and how people are how essentially large swaths of land can be um, commanded by who's in charge there. So I think I'd, what I'd say to the Pentagon is um, talk to Afghans. Talk to Afghans before you go and you engage the people in which, um, in which live there. 
And that's the thing is I don't think that's what's happening is a decision's made and the way the government works is that it's disseminated, disseminated down. It's a hierarchy. And so if we're actually in the business of, if the United States is actually in the business of winning the hearts and minds of others or, or essentially establishing relationships for the long term, that what we should do is engage in relationships like they matter. How do you do that? By asking questions, by giving people a place to speak, by meeting people where they actually are in order to essentially work in partnership with them to get them to where they want to go, where they meet their their objectives, and at the same time work with us to meet our objectives. All right. Well, Bhaktash, thank you so much for sharing your perspective with us. I appreciate you being on the program. Thank you for having me. Up next, how artificial intelligence can create risks for discrimination and inequity. Straight ahead on Government Matters, new federal guidance to mitigate bias in AI. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Institute of Standards and Technology, or NIST, has created guidance to identify and manage bias in artificial intelligence. The National Fair Housing Alliance wants to make sure that communities of color and other underserved communities get fair access to mortgages and other services. Michael Akinwumi is the Chief Tech Equity Officer at the National Fair Housing Alliance. Michael, welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, nice to meet you. Explain to me how artificial intelligence can perpetuate discrimination or bias. Yeah, so when it comes to artificial intelligence or an example of it, which is uh, uh, machine learning, so they are powered by uh, data. And if you really want to understand how uh, AI or artificial intelligence can perpetuate or exacerbate discrimination or bias, it's good to actually start with the history behind the data. So for example, if you look at uh, financial services or housing, so the home loan, uh, homeowners uh, loan corporation, uh, which uh, was actually established by homeowners uh, loan act in 1933, uh, systematically excluded uh, people of color from having access to housing or even credit. And what that means is that if you don't even have access to uh, credit, there is no way you can actually be visible in the data that is being used to develop these algorithms. So, so essentially the algorithm looked at all the people that have credit. They said, oh, there's not a lot of people of color represented there. Therefore, let's not give credit and mortgages Ex to people of color. Exactly, because what AI actually does is that they are limited to the patterns that are represented in the data. So if they are not visible in the data, there is no way the algorithm or AI or even machine learning can actually pick them up because they are not even well represented in the data. And that's how, because another thing is that uh, there is a lot of different ways where the uh, data is already biased and you know, it continues to actually reinforce that uh, pattern which marginalizes or reduces the representation of the people of color in the data. So then is there particular data sets that should be excluded? Should you say, we don't want to look at race at all in this data, let's take it out? Yeah, so when it comes to like the applicable law, so we have uh, ECOA, the Equal Credit uh, Opportunity Act, uh, which clearly uh, states uh, variables that are actually not allowed to be used in determining 
uh, who has access to credit or housing, right? So, for example, you're not allowed to use age, you're not allowed to use sex, race, and all that. So, yes, and similarly, uh, when it comes to like Fair Housing Act, so we have, for example, we're not allowed to use familiar status and other variables. So, yes, there are variables that should be excluded from, uh, you know, being used in the uh, algorithm. So give me a brief overview then of NIST's guidance when it comes to managing and mitigating bias. Yeah, so NIST actually did a very good job, uh, in our opinion, of trying to identify the different areas where bias can actually come in. So when it comes to the life cycle or the development of an AI solution, so NIST identifies three stages. So the first stage, they call it the pre-design stage, where there's a lot of consultation, trying to understand, okay, what the business problem is, what are the requirements and all that. Then they move on to the design stage and also the development stage. And there, that is when you make decisions in terms of like what variables you want to use. For example, I mentioned uh, uh, variables that are not allowed to be used under the Equal Credit Opportunity Act or even Fair Housing Act. So uh, NIST did a very good job of identifying what areas discrimination or bias could actually come in at the design and development stage. And then from there, they went on to uh, the deployment stage because once you develop the solution, then the next thing is that you want to actually put it in a production environment where it impacts people. So in our opinion, that's actually like the, the starting point because uh, as you probably uh, saw in our, our recommendation, so there is still a fourth stage that is actually excluded and that is monitoring. So the common uh, belief uh, among people is that when you deploy AI solution, it never expires, it doesn't have a lifetime, but there is a, uh, a popular quote that all models, including AI models, they actually have a lifespan. So, and that's why we recommend that the solutions that are deployed should also be monitored. And not only that, even in the pre-design stage or throughout those processes, you know, voices or opinions of civil rights advocates should actually be integrated into the processes because these are people who truly understand the history behind the data and where discrimination so, or bias could actually amplify through the process. So, so Michael, we've been talking about how AI can um, amplify bias, but can it also be used on the other side? Can it be used to find and address bias and discrimination? Yeah, that's right. So it could be used so like uh, there are a lot of different ways or benefits that actually come with AI. For example, uh, when it comes to identifying what actually really constitutes bias, right? So one thing that the data science community has actually done is trying to map out all these three different areas that reflect the different stages that uh, NIST has also uh, you know, mapped out. So for example, we could use algorithm to identify bias at the pre-design stage and also use it to remove it. And even at the development stage, so there are a lot of techniques out there, even within uh, at NAFA, that's one of the things we're also reviewing and looking into. So there are algorithms that could be used to actually remove the bias as well. All right, well, Mar Michael, there's so much more to say about this, but we've run out of time. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> Up next, locking down critical assets with a new security model. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how to incorporate zero trust at all federal agencies. You can find and watch any episode of Government Matters at govmatters.tv. I'll be right back.
A new zero-trust mandate from the Office of Management and Budget wants to boost security protections for critical government assets. But there are issues with implementing zero-trust. Mark Foreman is former eGov administrator at the Office of Management and Budget and the first federal chief information officer. He's currently an executive vice president at Dynamic Integrated Services. Mark, welcome. Nice to have you. Thank you, Mimi. So tell me about the solar winds attack and what that exposed to us about the current state of the networks. Well, clearly network-based security had a purpose and it was part of the battle, but it's insufficient to protect the systems and the data. So what's the, there's something called cyber kill chain and how is that, what does that mean and how is that different from zero trust? You know, originally the concept was that you had to secure systems and the systems are applications and databases and uh, in the original versions of something called Gizma, Gizra and then FISMA, the concept was let's fix the vulnerabilities in the systems. That proved pretty hard to do and over time this concept of a cyber kill chain, that is you could stop people at the networks and they get to the next level of the network and the next level and if you could stop them at some point away, along the way that would be the cyber kill chain and what we saw from solar winds was that didn't really work because people could figure out how to assume a role and get through those various network controls down to the system and the system as long as you had the role this concept of role-based access controls or RBAC you could get into the system. So not fixing those systems vulnerabilities and relying on the cyber kill chain worked for a few years, but ultimately didn't work as SolarWinds showed us. So then what does zero trust mean and how is that different? Well, rather than saying we're going to stop the threats coming through the network uh, by seeing if they fit a role or fit RBOC, or stop them at the system level by this RBOC role-based access controls, we're now going to understand who's the person, what device are they using, and is this the normal behavior of the person who is actually authorized to use that application. So zero trust is a different approach and it requires obviously a lot of re-architecting and rethinking how the security controls are put in place. So OMB says that before anything else, um, agencies first have to identify what assets they already have. This is do, do they not know what they have? Oh, this is really important. No. <laughs> they, you know, at some level, you know what asset you have. But from the standpoint of government IT management, this is really important to understand what exists within the, the architecture, uh, and people would say the different la layers of the ar architecture. What are the databases? Who has access to the databases? What are the applications? What devices? What are the networks? All these different pieces in what's essentially over $100 billion annual IT spend. Some people know the piece parts, but from the standpoint of government IT management, cybersecurity has always been the basis for understanding the inventory of IT assets. And this is another round to get up to date and, and update those, those asset methods of understanding what's in that federal IT spending. So let's say you've got everything tracked, then what? How do agencies go about determining you know, what they need, what they don't need? What do you do after that? There are a couple things that have to occur. First of all, people are going to have to define their target state architecture. Uh, what you find when you look at all the architecture, especially at the end of the fiscal year where we are now, is that uh, you may have a lot more licenses that you need 
and another agency may need some of those very licenses. When I was the EGOV administrator, uh, we took the opportunity during August and September to reallocate so the government didn't have to overinvest in some agencies and underinvest in others. You rationalize it across the enterprise. And, and I know the vendors, the license, uh, licensee, licensors, didn't really like that. But we got to think about this as you're ultimately supporting the taxpayers. So that's one thing, just basic architecture analysis and optimization of spent. The other thing in figuring out that target state architecture is what will have to change to put in place zero trust. And this is a huge, uh, very time consuming, as the memo I think refers to, this is going to take a number of years. All these legacy applications and even applications built today don't really have good security built into them. It's just not the way developers think. Well, Mark, we also have to pay for it because I'm assuming this is not that cheap to, to do. So do agencies have the funding available to implement the, the OMB guidance? No. They're going to have to look at and get some guidance from OMB on where to set the priorities. And I think this raises the other key point here. Cybersecurity has never been successful in any agency where the executive, the secretary, the administrator is not directly behind securing their, those systems. You know, a, a cybersecurity leader understands this, but if you're a political head of an agency, you've so much on your plate. OMB and the White House needs to hold the political appointees accountable in the agencies for making this the correct priority. It's a risk-based decision, clearly, but the political leader has to understand the risk trade-off, and that's, that's really hard for a lot of political appointees. All right. Well, Mark, thank you so much. I appreciate the conversation. Thank you. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And don't forget, you can find every episode of our program on YouTube. Hit subscribe to see all the videos we post. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges.